This is episode number 366 with Randy Goldberg and David Heath of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey, Founder Fam, Nathan here. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Randy Goldberg and David Heath, who are the co-founders of a company called Bumbus Socks. Now, these guys launched in 2013. They received funding through crowdfunding on an Indiegogo campaign. And then a year later, they raised $1 million from seed friends and family. And uh, yeah, not long after that, they were on Shark Tank. They they now do over $100 million in revenue. And uh, yeah, they've donated like over 35 million pairs of socks. So in this interview, you're really going to learn about their business journey, um, raising crowdfunding dollars, everything Shark Tank. Like this is one of the most successful investments Damon John has ever made. He told us that. Um, And really like, you know, big mistakes e-commerce brands are making, what channels are working right now. And really like, how do you go out and find your own unique value proposition for your business? Like these guys have turned an everyday product into like, in a saturated market into a massive company while doing social good within business, which I think is an incredible feat. So that's it from me, guys. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. Now let's jump in the show. The first question I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you guys get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? It does feel like a job sometimes. It's funny to say that, you know? Yeah. I don't ever really think of this as our job, right? Well, sometimes I feel like I work for every a different person every week at the company. Or it's like, God, this week it really feels like I work for Kate or something like that, you know? I think I think our stories are, are shockingly somewhat similar. Um, you know, my, my story is that, you know, I, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. My dad's an entrepreneur, first generation immigrant. 
Um, I watched him build uh, a business in the basement of our house into you know, a multi-million dollar business over 35 years. You know, he just retired at 75. And I think whether through genealogy or osmosis, you know, I was destined to be an entrepreneur. You know, I was the kid in the neighborhood who, you know, had lemonade stands, walk dogs, clean gutters, um, anything I could do to hustle for a buck. Uh, when I was, when I was little, I, I, I would do, um, and then, you know, when it was time to go to college, I went to school for entrepreneurship, majored in, in management and entrepreneurship and marketing. I kind of always knew that eventually I wanted to start and run my own company. I didn't have kind of the eagerness, like right out of school to be like, okay, this is what I'm going to go and do. Or, you know, I've got some great, great, crazy idea. I think I was like, I want to go work for startups and like learn, you know, what it's like to be a part of a, a, a fast growing early stage company. And I think that that path ultimately let me led me to meeting Randy, um, where we were both early stage employees at a media startup. And I'll let him share his story. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess it was sort of similar for me uh, in that my my parents owned a business together. My father was an entrepreneur, and then you know, I, I guess I had that bug early on. I, I washed cars and shoveled snow around the neighborhood. Um, but I didn't major in entrepreneurship like Dave. I didn't really, I don't know. I guess it didn't think it was part of going to be part of my career path. And I mean, Dave probably knew it when he met me, but maybe I didn't. I, I don't know. <laughs> we, I think we we're both pretty entrepreneurially minded. Um, but I, I worked, you know, uh, in the ad world as a copywriter and a strategist and, uh, built my career that way after some, some other weird right and left turns but we ended up like they said working at a company together and we just became friends and I, I think a shared outlook on the world and appreciation for similar things although coming at the work from different disciplines I think made us like good friends and good potential partners and I think there was a moment where we were like yeah we we're gonna do something together at some point I'm not sure what it is um, it wasn't socks that wasn't our we have to start a sock company <laughs> like that's not I don't think anyone grows up dreaming of that, right? But, you know, I think you you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, ideas come from anywhere, right? So how did this idea come about? How did you guys start Bomber Socks? Yeah, so, you know, as Randy mentioned, you know, we, we became kind of fast friends and, uh, you know, spent five years working together. And I think during that period of time, you know, we we had this kind of shared experience at this fast-growing organization and commiserated over the things that we thought were done poorly and celebrated the things we thought were done great. But we we found ourselves oftentimes eating lunch together, going to the gym together. And I think when you spend a lot of time with somebody, especially if you're interested in, in entrepreneurship, you know, just the randomness of ideas start flowing, right? And you're like, what if we sold popsicles to just children and like i don't know so like you know these weird and you're like what that already exists it's called an ice cream truck you're like oh right bad idea um but you know you keep your eyes open are you claiming to have had the idea for the ice cream truck is that is you know you know no bad no bad idea to brainstorm sure you know so so we, we we walked around i think with our eyes open our ears to the ground and and always looking for opportunity and you know, I think like all things in life, opportunity strikes when you least expect it. And 
I was scrolling on Facebook one day and I came across a post that said socks are the number one most requested clothing item in homeless shelters. And I remember immediately feeling both surprised and sad. I was like, that's upsetting that an item of clothing that I personally never spent more than a few seconds a day thinking about is perceived as a luxury item for hundreds of thousands of people here in the United States um, and even more so abroad. Um, and I remember going over to Randy's desk and sharing the quote with him and, and seeing kind of a, a similar, um, you know, look come over his face. And, you know, at that moment, we weren't like, we've got it. We're going to do a one-for-one sock company. You know, I think we we sat with it. You know, we were like, what can we do? Let's go out and buy some socks. And so we carried some socks around in our bags to and from work and handed them out. And, you know, this was early 2011. And, you know, I think the the light bulb uh, went off when, you know, we kind of connected the growth that Tom's shoes had been experiencing. They were in their fifth year of business doing hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, Warby Parker had just launched and, you know, took the the one for one shoe idea from Tom's and applied it to eyewear. And we were like, maybe this is the solve. Maybe we can donate a pair of socks for every pair of socks that we sell, but never had aspirations of like it being this massive thing. We were like, you know, this should be a fun little hobby. You know, maybe we'll create some cool, fun socks like on our path to our real business, you know, idea. Yeah, we just started working on it. And uh, as they always say, like the rest is history. Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign, you guys raised $140,000 on there. What what happened next? Like how, how did that happen? Um, was that was that the the pilot to launch and, and to really validate the product or you guys had already got some validation and traction? Well, I guess we had validation from like our parents and some friends and some strangers at the gym, but this was our first, you know, public moment with the product. This is that was the whole point of it was all right, let's see if some strangers are interested in this idea. And, you know, we always say like, when we wrote the script for the video for, for our Indiegogo campaign, that was kind of the, the writing the covenant of the Bombas brand. You know, like we took three months probably to write that script and we would probably take three hours to do something like that now. But at the time it was the wrenching work of making sure everything was in the right order and the ideas were written down and memorialized the right way. And that was an important step for us. Um, and it, it gave us confidence. And then we had that video and we worked that that campaign like it was a full-time job. A lot of elbow grease to create the success in that campaign. That got us to a point where we had a couple thousand people who had believed in it and who had you know signed up. And the nice thing about that was we got those email addresses. And we launched our website from there and we got it live and we go, okay, now what? So that's sort of a moment. I think a lot of, I talked to a lot of founders where they have that, they, they, they were fighting hard for something and then that happens and then you go, oh, right. Like now what? And how do you get people to come shop here? And we're like, okay, what well, we know email. We worked at a company that was pretty good at email. We've got this list. Let's start there. And let's build it and let's be smart about where we spend our money because we don't have any. Um, And let's think about the things that all four founders do really well. And let's use those those skill sets as sort of free labor until we can afford to hire more people. And it's just a lot of the early work, I think, looks the same at a lot of companies where, you know, you're pushing really hard on things that seem so important and 
further into it you get, those things become easier and it becomes secondhand and you're building, you're building work on work that you don't even realize you're doing. Um, and you're building hopefully the foundation of something great that's appreciated in the marketplace and good timing and has a good fit and you get a little lucky and you, you're a little good and you surround yourself with really smart people and advisors. And, um, you know, that was sort of the early days. You know, I think sometimes we would look back and be like, wow, we, we got a lot done and it felt like things were moving really slowly. And, and I, I don't think we can underscore the, that time in the business enough because I think, you know, everybody thinks, look from the outside looking in, you know, oh, it's a total overnight success, right? Like they just hit it out of the park and they got lucky. And yeah, luck did play a part along the way. But, you know, I think one of the greatest tragedies to happen to kind of entrepreneurship over the last you know, 10 years is, is this idea that like anybody with a idea on the back of a napkin can go raise a million bucks for an idea. And, you know, it, it's especially harder for those that don't have the means or the network or the access. And, you know, we did this the old fashioned way, right? We like bootstrapped out of the gate. We, we built an Indiegogo campaign for $5,000. We like put our money together. We, we stayed up late, worked on weekends while we had jobs, you know, you know, putting this campaign together, you know, and then even then, once we had initial traction and success, you know, everyone was like, oh, so you're going to go out and raise money. You're going to raise money. And we're like, no, we got to like, see if people, when they get the product, did they, come back and buy the product? Do they tell their friends about the product? You know, how can we like get as far as we can without like, you know, putting anything into this, you know, from a monetary standpoint, you know, and before we, we had done about $500,000 in our first, you know, five months before we had decided, all right, like now we feel like we have validation. You know, we've talked to customers, the feedback is amazing. You know, people want more from us. And, and we really did, we hustled it out. Like we did it, we did it the old fashioned way. And, um, you know, and I think that's a, a, a key cornerstone to even the way that we grew this company. I mean, a lot of D2C brands, particularly you look at, you know, they've raised 30, 40, 80, 100, $200 million. Um, and we've built our entire business on $4 million of capital raised, a million of our seed funding and $4 million in series A. Mind you, from no venture funds, no institutional capital, um, all of it was kind of, you know, small checks uh, from, you know, an angel network of, of different people that I went out and, and made myself, you know, so we kind of built this thing brick by brick, uh, you know, the old fashioned way. Um, so, you know, it, you, you don't need access to tons and tons of capital early on in order to get proof of concept. Yeah, love it. Thank you for being so open and honest about this because I'm a big fan of bootstrapping too. And I'm curious, um, with your guys' one-for-one model, how do you, like in those early days, how did you balance that desire to give back but while remaining profitable? Were there many mistakes early days that you could perhaps share with with this model? Because, uh, you know, as you said, you guys were bootstrapped and haven't raised much capital. Yeah, I mean... Listen, a little bit of this was luck in terms of the margin structure of the category that we're in. But from day one, we were donating a product for every product that we sold. It was not, there was no chance that we would compromise that. We understood the power of that. Um, 
And we started this business to help solve a, a problem in our community. So if we weren't donating, it wouldn't be bombless, right? It just couldn't, these things, it couldn't exist without it. So when we would meet an investor who would say, you know, how you're, you're giving away half of my profits by donating a pair, like Mr. Wonderful said on Shark Tank, or a lot of people said this to us along the way. Like, if I had to be honest, like, I don't know how the donation model scales, but we built it into the unit economics from the beginning. I, I like to think of it like learning a foreign language, right? Like the earlier you learn it, like when you're a kid, the easier it is and the more fluent you are at it. And, you know, you can't re remove it later on. You just know French or whatever. Um, so it's the same thing because we started so early, because it's so foundational to who we are, you know, the business benefits are clear to us. It's a flywheel for our business. The the idea of what it what it is, it's why people are attracted. A lot of our customers, it's the number one reason people purchase our products. You know, it's sort of like it is who we are. So we couldn't, you know, the investors who got it got it. You know, and and that was that. And those are our people. And you know, for us, it was just profitability had to come with that included. There, there was no way around it. So that just made us figure it out. And listen, if we weren't able to figure that out, we wouldn't be sitting here today. It wouldn't be like we would have abandoned it and just been a sock company, you know, with crazy designs or something like that. That wasn't interesting to us. Yeah. So it sounds like that that is the core and you guys just made it work. Yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting along the way we've come up against a number of challenges. And I think, again, I look back at our fundraising strategy and, and because we only took capital when we knew that we could take capital that we could spend to get an ROI and return on investment, whether it was through marketing or through headcount, um, we weren't doing it to solve problems with our business, right? We, we said, okay, if there is a fundamental challenge that we have with the business, like we have to be able to solve it without money or else like, you know, we're just going to keep going back to that well every time we have a problem, right? And it's, you know, it's, I think it's the trap that a lot of venture funded businesses fall into. It just becomes the easy way out, right? Oh, let's, let's go try this thing. We spend a bunch of money on it. Didn't work. Let's go raise more money. Let's try a bunch of things. It's like when you're actually bootstrapped, like, and your dollars matter, you take the time and caution to really try to like, you know, scenario plan or, or what we call like war games, right? Internally, you run it on a model or you like talk it through to, to, you know, ad nauseum to you're like, I feel like we are, we are convicted in kind of the right direction. And do you always get it right? No. But like the more time you take, especially in those early days to like face challenges and, and think about how do you, how can you build structure or process or, you know, a fundamental approach to how to get past these challenges rather than just throwing money at the problem. It makes you a better business and it also trains that muscle so that when you do get big, you know, we're sitting here with a, a, a rather large balance sheet and it just keeps growing because like, it's not our instinct to just say like, all right, let's go spend some money on it. See, like, we're like, let's do the hard work. Let's, let's, let's dig deep and find the answer ourselves. You know, and like the, the, the timing matters there too, right? If you have a mandate to grow super quickly, that's, you know, like from a VC investor, it could make it challenging not to go chase after some of those opportunities and not to focus on the thing that you're great at and getting better at it. 
And and that's where I think not having that pressure, allowing our to, to take the time and make the mistakes that we made, build the things the way we wanted to build it, go a little slower, figure out when we needed to move a little faster. And like, ultimately, could we have grown faster? I don't know. Maybe we, we've been very fast growth company for the last eight years. So there's probably some, there's, pro- I think we're the sort of proof that you don't have to try and speed through everything and return someone's money immediately. And, you know, if that creates the kind of pressure that creates mistakes, in my opinion. Yeah, I love how you talk about this idea of these these constraints. So you just have to make it work and you don't have anything to fall back on. Um, I'd love to shift gears and talk a little bit about Shark Tank and that experience. Um, can you take us through what that process looked like in the early stages? Yeah, I think this is this is probably one of those moments of luck, you know. But again, I think we created the scenario in which you know luck uh, luck decided to knock on on our door. We randomly got an email one day. And it was like Shark Tank Casting four zero three two one at gmail dot com, and I was like, "This feels like a scam." Um, and they're like, "Hey, would you be interested in applying for Shark Tank?" And I shared it with Randy, and I was like, "This can't be real." And he's like, "Just reply. Let's see." And so we replied, um, and it turns out they use like freelance, you know, casting agents. Um, and they said they like they were like, hey, we discovered your Indiegogo campaign. We love the mission. We love the brand. You know, clearly you had some success. You and Randy seem really comfortable on camera. Like, we'd love for you guys to skip the kind of formal audition process and like move into the casting process. And we were like, there's no way this is real. Like, you know, to think back at <laughs> this moment, um, you know, we're on a conference call with these people, and you know. Every call, it got realer and realer, um, you know, over kind of a four-month period. Um, and, it, and it just kind of consumed us at the time. But again, we never, I think we were really pragmatic about it in the way that we were like, look, if this happens, great. You know, but the likelihood of us actually filming and then actually airing and then actually getting a deal, like, we're not going to bet our business on it. Let's just like approach this the way that we approach everything else get super prepared, know our information, you know, give it the best shot we can, but like, you know, set ourselves up to run a great business without it. Right. And the thing, I think this is another lesson for early entrepreneurs that I hear far too often is that like, they think that if they just get that one break, that like, that's all they need. Right. And they're like, if I can just get on Oprah's favorite things or, or if Justin Bieber just sends one tweet about my company, or if I get, it's like, all right, well, you know, you, you can't, bank your company's success on whether you capture lightning in a bottle, you know, randomly, you know. Um, so similarly, I think, you know, we were just like, all right, let's do it like we always do, prepared incredibly well, did our did our research, watched a ton of episodes, saw the ones that did well, saw the ones that didn't, and just like grinded it out and, and really did our homework and walked into it, ended up, you know, in the in the tank, we got a deal, but weren't sure if they were going to air our episode because they're like, you know, we won't tell you if it's going to air until two weeks before. So like, you know, just wait and see, and maybe it won't at all. And then two weeks before the season premiere, we got a phone call and they were like, your episode's going to air. And we were like, cool. We are not ready for this at all. We did like a janky little website. You know, we had like no team. We, we went from zero customer service. I was our customer service person to like ramping up 40 freelance customer service people like overnight 
and our site still crashed. Many times, many times. Um, but it was an awesome experience. I mean, you know, we did 900,000 in sales pre-Shark Tank in the first year. And then in two months, we did 1.8 million. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was a massive growth engine for us at the time. Sold out of all of our inventory. They ended up re-airing our episode on Black Friday. Um, it was a it was a massive moment for us in the company. I think a, a big catalyst, um, you know, for for from a momentum standpoint for for helping us kind of get off the ground. The, you asked about the early part of it as well. The process of preparing for that show was a very helpful process for the business in general. And I think if you're a young founder or a young entrepreneur and you have a business that's growing, I think pretending that you are about to go on to Shark Tank in like a month is a very good, very good exercise because we had to confront the possibility that they could ask us anything they want on national television and we had to have an answer for it. So if there was something that we didn't, that we weren't talking about or weren't addressing because it was a touchy subject or we would deal with it later, then we had to stand there and talk about it amongst ourselves in case they asked, you know, are you full-time? We only want full-time people on it. Whatever the question is that you're not addressing with your co-founders or with your employees, you know, going through an exercise where you force yourself to talk about everything in a series of interviews, even with other people in your company, I think that would be very useful. That was super helpful for us. Even if we never made it to air, I think it helped us address some of the things that would have been issues later on. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Can you tell us about your relationship with Damon and what is the best piece of advice um, that he's ever given you? Yeah, our relationship is great. You know, he, he's been an incredible, you know, mentor and friend to us. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I think, you know, he spotted us early on and was like, you guys have, you know, all of the things that are great about your direct to consumer business. So are all the things that I see wrong with running a wholesale business, which is, you know, what he had kind of, you know, been known for. Um, and so every time we kind of called to ask for advice, he's like, you're the new generation, you're the experts, like, you know, keep leaning into what you're doing. You know, that being said, I think there was a moment, uh, a couple moments in, in the company where we wanted to, you know, maybe expand into other things faster, whether it was, you know, selling into wholesale stores or moving into new product categories. Um, and, you know, he was just like, guys, your business is growing, you know, three, 400% year over year. He's like, just keep doubling down on what you're doing. It's like, stay focused, stay diligent, 
you know, and just keep doing the thing that like you're doing really well. Like that's what's going to, that, you know, that's what's going to continue to, you know, fuel your growth, you know, for the future. And if you ever find yourself in a point where growth is slowing, then we can talk about these other options, but like, don't be distracted. Like, you know, if, 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 if it's working for you, just like keep going at it. And then he always says something like rise and grind, you know, or <laughs> one of his like book titles, you know. Oh, that's cool. Um, so just wrapping and rounding out the uh, Shark Tank piece, what advice would you give to founders or any entrepreneur that is thinking about or wanting to go on Shark Tank? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think Randy summarized it well, is that like, be prepared. Um, you know, go through the exercise, um, and and whether you're not whether you get on it or don't get on it, you know, it's 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 again a kind of amount going on Shark Tank to you know like saying like okay, well, I want Beaver to tweet about me. It's like it's not something you can control, um, even if you get into the application and, and screening process. I mean, about seven times every call that we had with them, they're like, just because we're talking about this doesn't mean you're going to get on the show, like. You know, they were really, really careful. And look, we showed up to, to set with 140 other businesses and they're like, by tomorrow, 70 of you will be gone. And by the next day, another 30 of you will be gone. So like even people that they flew out to LA to pitch would get cut. So, you know, go through the exercise, know your business incredibly well, inside out, have the hard conversations, talk about the things that you might be avoiding, um, you know, and then apply and and you know hopefully you get on as a crapshoot but um i think knowing your business again as randy said is probably the best piece of advice we can give you switching gears just around e-com direct to consumer obviously you know you guys started around the time when shopify and you know a lot of e-commerce business was were were starting to pop up now if you fast forward almost 10 years later that is rampant right so I'm sure you guys uh, speak to a lot of early stage e-com D2C founders. Like what is what is the biggest mistake you believe um, people are making or the most common that you're seeing? Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I can jump in. I, I think that I think that one of the biggest mistakes is that anybody believes that, you know, just because something is not sold online, that like that's their opportunity. It's like, guys, you know, there's no branded direct-to-consumer basketball company like we're going to be the biggest direct-to-consumer basketball company it's like all right like that just be, like you can't put like direct-to-consumer in front of a product and then think it's revolutionary i think the other thing too which is which you know we're seeing you know uh, at scale is like the when we started we we started in this interesting like moment where the facebook advertising algorithm was starting to get sophisticated enough where it was powerful, but it wasn't widely adopted. So it was cheap, right? When, when we were first spending money on Facebook, we were getting CPAs for like two to like six bucks to acquire a customer. You go out today, just starting today, you're in the like twenties and thirties. So consume, you know, brands need to spend so much more to kind of get to that point of realizing, finding out who their customer is or what ad works. I mean, we had a tremendous amount of runway from just being able to test very, very cheaply on, on Facebook to 
hone in and say like, okay, this type of customer responds well to this, this customer responds well to that. If we tweak the copy here, we're going to see an increase in conversion rate. But it was so cheap that it didn't cost us a lot to figure that out. If you 10x the cost of that, we would have run through capital so much faster um, and, and probably wouldn't have been able on the, sh- on the small budget that we had to get to that proof point of figuring out where our customer buckets were that we could then more efficiently lean in and really pump the scale on. Um, I think they think that, you know, I think what we benefit from today is our size and scale where, you know, we have access to data and tools and we're working in the Facebook disruptors group. They're giving us access to new ad tools and platforms. And we've got, we've got teams dedicated to figuring out within the matter of minutes, if an advertising piece of advertising creative is going to work or not. Um, and so it's a, we've kind of crossed the chasm, um, you know, and, and again, I think we, we benefit from a category that has high margin is a low considered purchase, you know, you know, uh, decision. So, you know, easy for sizing available to everybody. Um, so I think that some of the pitfalls that people fall out today is they think, Oh, Bombas is selling socks at scale. Well, I can sell toothbrushes or you know hairbrushes or you know, any other brushes. Um, <laughs> these guys, those brushes and ice cream trucks, just for everybody. yeah, all day, every day. It's it's a challenging environment. We talk often. If we were starting over right now, we wouldn't do it the same way. It would have to be completely different. So we're actually looking at the next generation of companies or who are reinventing how to find their customer base, how to market themselves. Because there was a model in direct consumer brands where it was raise a bunch of VC money, dump it into a Facebook, just transferring money from VC to Silicon Valley, transferring money to try and build up a customer base at a certain price. And then you run out of money and you raise more money. And there's pressures that we talked about earlier. We avoided one part of that and not the other part. We had a lot of success with the other part, but it's a different environment now. So, you know, customers are companies are getting smart and figuring out new ways to find an audience, new ways to, to like grind out like the brand, you know, like customer by customer and being smarter about it. And now we're trying to learn some of that new language uh, in addition to capitalizing on our momentum. Yeah. Blazing your own path here is you know, looking at the moment that you're starting and figuring out what's the angle, you know, how many times, Randy, along the years, did you have people be like, oh, your million pair video, which was this video we shot, you know, ended up being a Facebook case study, you know, has, you know, over a hundred million views online across all platforms. People are like, hey, can I get the name of the director for that video? I want to create that video for our brand. And I'm like, no, it's done. It's over. Like you can't just do what somebody else just did and expect the same results. Like no one could look at the Dollar Shave Club video and be like, I'm going to do exactly that for my brand and have it work because the consumer is like, no, bro, that's already been done before. Like you're not authentic. You're not real. You're not doing your own thing. And so like Like a sequel, right, Dave? And and even worse, and they're kind of like blatant ripoffs. And we just saw it. And and you know, people would be like, I don't get it. We did the same thing you did and it's not working. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> like, you got to do something different. Yeah, no, that's a really good point that you make. Um, so I'm curious, like, in terms of channels now for you guys, obviously 
Facebook ads, it sounds like you guys are, are doing quite well. Uh, organic, YouTube ads, like what are other channels that are working for you guys right now? Um, you know, it's funny. It's like the same kind of mentality. We want to look to where there are opportunities and spaces that people wouldn't think about, you know, like, you know, we're a new direct to consumer company. Okay. Let's advertise on the radio, right? Let's send out direct mailers. Let's see what TV looks like for us. Let's explore these places. Like let's create partnerships with very few select retailers, even though we're a direct to consumer company and, and meet their customers where they are. Right. Like, we want to find what, where people are spending their time and creating space and intentionality in their day and be there to like provide them with the right message at the time and let them know that we will be supporting them. That's what we do as a brand. We go and find people where they are and we support them. So we have the traditional success, Facebook, Instagram. We're exploring all the new digital platforms and testing and learning in those places as well. But we're not afraid to do you know things that seem a little bit, uh, I don't know, like older or left of center or experimental um, just to try and find customers and, you know, make people like put some bombas in front of them, see what, see what happens. Love it. Okay. So when it comes to your mission, um, how would you recommend founders communicate that to their consumers in the early days? What should they be thinking about when it comes to that? Because your guys, you have a really strong and, and really purposeful mission, but I think a lot of early stage founders, that's something they don't really approach the best way or they don't, haven't really worked out and they just want to make money. Yeah. I think Randy touched on this before, right? Like I think why so why it was so successful for us, but also why it was so easy for us is it was built into the DNA of the company, right? It, it was the spark that ultimately lit the flame. We didn't sit there saying like, we want to build, you know, a multi-million dollar stock company. And oh, by the way, let's find a way to give back. We were like, hey, there's a problem in our community. How can we solve this? Oh, we like business. Oh, maybe business can help solve this problem. So it was very organic and authentic. You know, if, if that, if that moment doesn't hit you right away, I, I think, you know, really digging deep on the kind of, or, or pulling on the authenticity thread, I think is super important, right? Like get close to something and figure out like, you know, how, how to, how, how it can create meaning to you personally, right? I think if you are able to connect to it personally, you know, one of the things that we do at Bombus is we require every new employee, um, to we give them 10 pairs of socks on the first day that they start. And this is more obviously in the in-person environment. Um, and being in New York City, we'd say, hey, you're probably going to encounter someone in the homeless community to and from your way to work, you know, hand them a pair of socks, you know, if they need it, offer them, start a conversation. And everybody comes back and they all have these very unique, beautiful stories of, I didn't realize, you know, how simply just saying hi to somebody could change their day or this guy who I see sitting on the block, you know, I thought he was a drug addict, but it turns out that his wife is really sick and, you know, he has to raise some money to take care of her. Like whatever these stories are, which we all, which Randy and I had, I think early on, because we said like, okay, let's carry socks around us. And we had these individual moments that were just like, I mean, I literally get goosebumps just thinking about it, that like, I can't shake these stories, right? And that allows me to show up super authentically every single day. There's a ice cream, coconut ice cream company that I, I invested in 
and she was like, look, I really want to have a mission and, you know, maybe I can, you know, uh, do this or do that. And I was like, try to find a way to like cohesively connect it naturally for the consumer, right? If you're, uh, uh, if you're a coconut ice cream company, don't give do blankets to dog shelters, right? Like that would be like, what? That doesn't make sense at all. But you know, I was like, do some research, figure out like where it, maybe there's a moment point in, in your supply chain that like you can help. And it turns out coconut farmers are, you know, typically in third world countries, wildly poor. You know, she went there and realized that they work to try to break the poverty cycle by sending their kids to you know school and hopefully their kids will get educated because they didn't have that opportunity. And so then she came back and she's like, all right, we're going to donate a part of our proceeds to help provide um, you know, books and, and school supplies to our coconut farmers, right? That makes a lot of sense for the consumer, right? When they see the plaque on the wall, when they walk into the store, it makes a ton of sense. And it's an easy story for people to tell. And she can tell it because she's like, I went there, I found this out. It wasn't like, oh, I Googled like how to give back. Like that's not going to resonate with anybody. So you've got to make it personal. You've like, really got to go out there. Don't just like, you know, look something up online that sounds good. Like if, if it's interesting, go volunteer, go, go get close to it. Talk to, we, you know, we didn't know how to donate a pair of socks. So like we called a homeless shelter and we we're like, Hey, is this sock thing a real problem? And they're like, it's a tremendous problem. We can't get enough. And we're like, well, what if we created a company where we sent you socks whenever we sold them that, that you could hand out to the homeless community? They were like, that would be amazing. Right. So like, we, we understood the problem, right? And that allowed us to talk about the problem to our customers, to our employees, to our partners in such an authentic and genuine way that they then bought into it because like they wanted to be a part of that story and that journey. Dave, you're bringing back some memories with Hammer Socks, which is amazing. I, I also think it's just so important to be able to weave it into the, the core narrative of your company. If you really mean it, it shouldn't be like off to the side, like a department or something you talk about occasionally. Make it part of your core narrative. When, when we say one purchased equals one donated, like that is core to who we are, right? Like this has always been the way it is for us. And Dave was really big on this early on is we wanted to make our story so easy to understand that our customers would be out there like telling the story on our behalf. And they didn't have to study it to do it. It, it had, it, we, we just tried to simplify the message and then be really consistent about it. Dave always says like, you know, our product is great. Our mission is authentic, but the order in the which the way people tell it is they'll go to a party and they'll say, have you heard of the sock company Bombas? Um, you know, do you know socks are the most requested clothing item at homeless shelters? They donate a pair for every pair you buy. Oh, and by the way, they're the most comfortable socks you've ever worn and t-shirts and underwear and slippers. Um, if you haven't tried some of our newer products, but this is what they would say. And that's like the order that it would go in. It wasn't just about, you know, so both parts are important and the both parts make the other part of the story better. And if you have something like that, where the two plate, two pieces of it, your mission and your product support each other, that's powerful and can be exponential if it's done the right way. Yeah. You've got to find the thing that's memorable and easy. Right. And like Randy said, if you, showed up to a dinner party and were like, hey, I bought these comfortable socks. You'd be like, cool, you're never invited to my house again. Why are you talking to me about comfortable socks? But if you like brought the mission into it, you'd be like, 
oh, right. And then like you see our commercial or you hear somebody else talk about it, you're like, oh, right, that sounds familiar, right? It's not, oh, just that comfortable sock company, right? That could be a lot of sock companies, right? We just happen to be the most comfortable, but um, you know, our mission is the thing that really sticks with people because that's the thing that we uniquely own that nobody else in our in our category can own yeah wow that was incredible advice thank you so much guys like that will really really help early stage founders so thank you um look conscious of time we'll work towards wrapping up uh we're we're gonna do this thing called the hot seat round so 30 second answers. I don't know whether the both of you guys want to jump in or take it. We'll ping pong back and forth. Okay. The first one is when you were going on to your Shark Tank episode, who did you have your eye on and why? That's easy. It was Damon because he's a New Yorker and he was in the fashion industry. Okay. What's the one trait every single entrepreneur needs to have? Resilience. Empathy. What's the one word you could use to describe your journey as an entrepreneur? Would like to hear it from both of you guys as well. Mine's exciting. Mine is winding. Okay. And then last one, uh, and I'd love to hear from both of you guys as well. Uh, what excites you the most about the future? I, I think it's kind of the same thing that it's always been since we started this company, and that's the team. The fact that we have a group of people who care tremendously about what we're building and the, the issues that we we're plugged into um, and that I get to work with Dave and the other founding group. Like it's just, it's just an amazing group of people. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that group of people and trying to support them uh, in their journeys and their careers and their personal lives um, and support each other. And that makes it really fun uh, and really exciting and continuing to build that team and uh, work with this group to me, that's, that's what I'm most excited about. For me, it's, you know, this idea that I can see a path for the next five to 10 years where, you know, coming to work every day, you know, still feels like we're just getting started. Um, you know, I think that's the most exciting thing about being in a growth business um, is that once you kind of hit a milestone, there's another milestone right next door. Um, and, uh, you know, for us, we've been, a, for seven plus years, we've been a single product category on a single channel of distribution in a single geography. And 2021 really marks the year where we've expanded into underwear and t-shirts as a new product categories. And then, you know, we're launching international later this year. And, you know, I just think about once those things have proof of concept, right, in those single categories and then in a single market, well, then we... We, what other product categories, what other markets, what other channels. And, you know, it, it really does for me, I get, it's like wild to think that we've been doing this for almost eight years. And I'm like, wow, it really just feels like, like we're just getting started in a lot of ways. Yeah. Incredible. Okay. Um, we've got one last question that's been snuck in by a producer. <laughs> when was the last time a brand truly impressed you and, uh, if so, what was it and why? I mean, it's it's been a, it was a while back, right? But I still think what Warby did with kind of the virtual try on at home, um, the ability to kind of like, I think for today we take augmented reality, like you know, because of all these Snapchat filters and Instagram filters and all these things, like and Zoom filters, like it becomes so commonplace. 
But at that moment, the ability to turn a camera on on your computer and like see like eyewear on your face and like watch it move with your head, like the fact that a direct to consumer brand did that is like wild to me. I mean, you know, I also think of, I think there's a tremendous amount of brands out there that have done really amazing things with inclusivity around marketing, right? Um, you know, people that that we were inspired by with our underwear launch campaign, where you know we included you know different you know skin tone colors, different body sizes, but there were brands that came before us, um, you know, that helped pave the way. I think like what Starface has done with acne, right, and like really celebrating uh, skin blemishes rather than like telling teenagers that it's ugly and they've got to hide it, hide them they're like calling them out, right? They're putting like these yellow stickers like on a zit or a scar. Like, I don't know, I think that's like, what a crazy world we live in now. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, guys. This was a ton of fun, like incredible yeah, interview, thanks, like so much gold share. This will really gonna, like it's gonna help a lot of people. Um, you've got incredible experiences. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Very nice meeting you. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.